design is about communication. It's about dialogue. It's about conversation. And what you're hoping for is that your object will still be relevant one day, even when you're gone, and you will still make somebody smile or excited. That's Michael Anastasiades, and this is the On Design Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the first new episode of 2020 of the On Design podcast with me, your host, Justyna Green. Um, I hope you've been very well and I hope you've listened to the trailer as well for this year where there have been a few updates of what's happening. And if you haven't, I tell you now that we're moving to fortnightly episodes just so that I can deliver them to you whilst I'm doing all sorts of other things in daytime. Um, so fortnightly episodes and we're starting today with an interview with Michael Anastasiades who's a lighting designer and he is this year's designer of the year for Maison Objet um, in Paris which is taking place on the 17th of January and Michael is just such a wonderful character. And we do talk about lighting, but actually we just talk about being an artist, being a designer, his design philosophy and his life. And so within our conversation, you will gain insights into what was it like to live um, on lower marshes in Waterloo in the 90s. Um, about Michael's career, he's, his kind of more experimental work at the beginning of his career with projects uh, such as Design for Fragile Personalities in Anxious Times. You'll find out more about that in our conversation, as well as um, the importance of working with brands, the meaning of being an industrial designer as well, um, and the kind of the ebb and flow of creativity and work and kind of commercial projects. Um, it's a very intimate, very personal chat, and um, please enjoy. for about 10-15 minutes <laughs> <laughs> I know so we're on Lower Marsh at your home and so what was special about so this was called Lambeth Marshes and was it you just started uh, saying there was first area in London to be developed yeah I mean I knew nothing about it mm-hmm. uh, all I knew is that um, it was probably the only forgotten central part of London that existed at the time um, I wanted to be central. I wanted to live somewhere central. I wanted to be able to walk everywhere. And especially at that time, I didn't really mind being next to a station. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it made sense. There was quite a lot of activity and I could walk anywhere, you know, by crossing the bridge. I, I also studied the area because I thought it was quite kind of strategic because looking at the river is the point where it makes this kind of big band around Waterloo. And it has all these bridges that are like a fan. So every bridge leads to a completely different neighborhood on the north side of the river. So I thought, wow, how amazing is that? This is, this is superb. You cross, um, you cross uh, Westminster Bridge and you're in Westminster and the Houses of Parliament. You're a 15-minute walk from um, St. James's Park and the Palace. Then you cross uh, the pedestrian bridge um, of Hangerford Bridge, and you're in uh, Trafalgar Square, and then you cross Waterloo Bridge. You're 
in um, in Covent Garden, and then suddenly you cross um, you know, uh, Blackfriars, and and also you know before that. Um, and then Southwark Bridge, and then you're in the city. I mean, it's, how amazing is that? I, so it made complete sense for me. So when I found this this uh, this place, because I walked around the neighborhood for quite a while. So you first decided on the neighborhood. And, and decided on the neighborhood. I mean, somebody had talked to me. I used to live in, um, in uh, near Bayswater for 10 years as a student. Mm-hmm. And I remained in that area for 10 years. And then eventually, when I started looking to buy, my option was going to be either to get a tiny little one-bedroom apartment in Bayswater, you know, Notting Hill area at the time was not what Notting Hill is today, or try to find somewhere else. And I was teaching at the time at uh, Camberwell mm-hmm. uh, College, and one of the uh, tutors there, um, a colleague, turned around and said to me, oh, you should come one day and visit us. Me and my husband have bought a little a uh, full house uh, on uh, right next to Bar Market. You know, we're talking about you know ninety six, ninety five, ninety six. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know where Bar Market is. I didn't know whether Bar Market existed. I had never, very rarely been south of the river, and I decided to go and visit her there one Saturday. So we walked b- past Bar Market, which was nothing what, what it is, is now? today. Mm-hmm. And uh, she showed me a whole house, you know, and she said, oh, you know, we bought it so cheap. She told me the price. I could not believe it. So she said, and then a few months down the line, she saw me at school at the college and she turned around and said, there's a house two doors down from us that is on sale. And if you're interested, I can get you the details. I called. They said it's available. I put an offer. It got accepted. And then all of a sudden, you know, the um, um, the sale was cancelled. Somebody else was offering more, mm-hmm. and so I went into this kind of silly game of. You know, was your final last and final and offer? Then, <laughs> and, and then finally, I I got so so upset that I lost that place, you mm-hmm. know, and 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 this is what made me think, okay, I can get something better. Yes, and you I started get a walking project. around the the area, and and I used to have a small, you know, a, a little scooter. So I started kind of driving around the, the neighborhood, and then start noting numbers down. And this is how I found this place. Mm-hmm. So it was. Uh, so how long was it since you started looking, and you actually got this place? I think ninety six. I got this place ninety seven. I mm-hmm. moved in in ninety eight. Yeah. Yeah. So. So when you were renovating it, you were going between Bayswater and yes, here. Yes, yes. For a year. Every yeah. morning I used to, because I didn't actually get a contractor to build this place. I, I didn't have money to do mm-hmm. that because um, I thought the best and the most economical way for me to do this project is to actually run the project myself. So um, I'm not a builder. I don't know how to build, but I can... Uh, supervise somebody to do the job. So I put an ad in the Evening Standard um, looking for builders and um, I interviewed uh, a bunch of them and I hired four builders and we started. And and this is... And every morning here? Every morning here. So uh, how did you I was look- a site uh, yeah. 
So you'd have to manager. site manager. So you'd have to come here in the morning, and then from here would you go I was here to Camberwell or I was here six? at six to open yeah. for everybody, and then um, uh, and then stay and spend quite a long time. I I used to teach twice a week mm-hmm. at Camberwell. What did time. you teach? I teach in uh, graphic design uh, and fine art. It mm-hmm. was an MA course. So how did you find it? Was because it, you were. You were you fond of your education or not so much your own education kind of? <laughs> well, at that time, I never really knew what uh, my qualifications were or my education was. I mean, I studied civil engineering, and then after that, I went to the Royal College and did a, a course in industrial design engineering, and and that was only on a master's level for mm-hmm. two years. So that certainly didn't give me the qualifications to be an industrial designer for sure. So post that, then yeah, so I could you... still be anything. I mean, I mm. was a creative mind. Uh, I had my own approach to things, and and uh, at least the people that hired me thought that that was interesting. So and did you I get hired it. quite quickly after? No, I and I I knew they were looking, and I went and saw them, and I started with mm. one day a week, and then became two day twice a. A week. Um, I, I, I taught in total for about two years. Mm-hmm. That was it. Then I stopped. I decided that I wanted to focus on my own things. So what, what was it like when you were so managing the site for a year, teaching at Campbell World twice a week, and kind of the other three days? Were you already working on your own designs and products? Were you finding your voice? Were you still kind of learning on the jobs? and I spent many years after the Royal College to continue my research in design mm-hmm. i use those years to really figure out what i wanted design to be mm-hmm. or what i expected to see uh, in design that did not actually exist because none of my studies taught me a model of something that i should be i ran away from engineering mm-hmm. And when I went to the Royal College, I wanted to run away from the industrial design engineering side of my studies. And I wanted to do something very extreme. Even my graduation project never really fitted. What was it? It was a message cup. It was a cup, a recording cup that you leave messages to the people that share the same household as you. Mm -hmm. So each person has his own cup that uh, is a voice recording and playback device and you know if I want to leave a message to you then I pick up your cup I talk to it I put it facing down on the table you come home you find the cup facing down on the table you know somebody has left you a message and then by simply turning it in an upright position then you then you, you hear you, the you hear the message and and it was right in the beginning of all this mobile uh, communication. Of I mean, text messaging was just, you know, really just starting. So it was... Uh, so there, there was no other way, because no, that's what we need to highlight no that at that time. There was also, no other way of communicating, no, no, apart from having posted no. notes. <laughs> posted notes was what it was. And, and of course, you know, that, that, that I had to resolve the whole engineering of of this voice recording mm. and playback device in order to uh, to pass the course. Otherwise, as an idea, it was a complete failure. So for them, I mean, this is what I wanted to do. That's what I did. Mm. So um, I decided that 
with products of that nature, I couldn't actually get a straightforward design job. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the experience. I didn't have the uh, BA training in industrial design. So therefore, I... Oh, so that blocked you from... Well, partly, yes, mm -hmm. and partly the extremity of my ideas. But I mm -hmm. thought that I didn't want to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to do something creative. I didn't like the course that I studied in. I liked the college that I studied in. Therefore, I needed to figure out what type of creative person I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. So I decided to continue my research. And how design. did you do that? What was your research? How did it, how did you spend your time? By coming up with different projects. Mm -hmm. and, and I did various projects which uh, were interactive, you know, in the same spirit as the Message Cup. I mm -hmm. did a lot of collaborative work also with uh, uh, two colleagues that. of mine, mm -hmm. Dan and Raby, Anthony Dan and Fiona Raby. Tony used to be my uh, tutor at the Royal College. He was the only outsider in that course that I was able to connect to intellectually. Mm -hmm. So I used to, you know, constantly go and uh, try and spend as much time as possibly could for the one day a week that he was teaching in my course. Mm -hmm. And so shortly after, you know, I graduated, um, uh, we met again, we kept in touch uh, and uh, we met again uh, with him and his partner at the, um, a conference uh, called Doors of Perception that was taking place in Holland. Mm -hmm. uh, it was run by John Thackeray at the time. And um, we both expressed our, uh, we all expressed our frustration uh, about design and what was going on in design. So there was what nothing was, interesting So what happening. was happening then? that wasn't interesting, that you didn't find stimulating? You know, there was uh, nothing interesting since the 60s and, and 70s, you know, when all these kind of radical ideas were taking place um, and, and nothing since. Everything was about, you know, styling and straightforward uh, mm. of, uh, product design. I mean, there was good product design out there, but not really pushing ideas, not uh, being critical about design in any ways and, and 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 that frustration led us to get together and um, develop our first project which was called weeds aliens and other stories mm -hmm. um, it was a series of uh, furniture pieces um, inspired uh, by the um, obsession the british had on gardening and you know um, and um, there were, it was a series of psychological objects, you know, that What are psychological objects? Well, they were devices that uh, helped you communicate with your plants. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we had these identity labels that you put in your flower pots that um, were uh, reading uh, poems and recipes to your plants when you're away on holiday. So they were these electronic labels. Um, uh, there were other devices where you would act as intercoms between the inside and the outside so you would be able to share your activities with your plants. Devices that would help you uh, talk to individual um, plants when there's a group of them in one specific space. So you direct your focus to that particular flower or, 
or planned. Um, and, and it was all ideas like this and, you know, um, and um, we made it as a proposal, uh, a book of, uh, of ideas. Um, and uh, we produced three copies of this book. And it was not until um, many years later uh, when we uh, got invited by curator Andre Cook, who was running the British Council Window Gallery in Prague, to, um, uh, to make these mm-hmm. uh, objects or make a selection of these products and exhibit them in the windows of the British Council in Prague. Uh, and 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 uh, this is when they became real products, and then they uh, started uh, being exhibited in many different uh, places, museums, and eventually uh, the collection got acquired by the Victoria and Albert Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, so, did you feel at that time that that was quite an important moment? For you as a designer? Of course, any achievement is an important mm. moment. And, and being part of a national collection, I think, is, 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 is quite a, it's a great thing. It's a great encouragement that at least that type of design that you believe in uh, has uh, a certain level of appreciation. Mm-hmm. And, and that's quite unique. So it was... Um, it was fantastic. It was a great encouragement, and, and that's what we did. We decided to kind of uh, take the money that we made out of the sale and put it into the next project. And then we did the next project, which was called Design for Fragile Personalities in Anxious Times. It was a group of psychological objects that help you get uh, over um, um, uh, contemporary fears that you had and anxieties, uh, the fear of nuclear war, for mm-hmm. example, which is relevant every day. Absolutely. Uh, but um, it's a it's a series of cuddly toys in the shape of atomic explosions. So the idea is that you would uh, hold on to it and hug it to familiarize yourself with so the fear of, with you fear with your... of nuclear war. Mm. Uh, and then there was this other series of hideaway furniture pieces. So they were pieces of furniture that were made out of flooring material, like parquet flooring, and they would open in quite intricate ways. And inside they would be lined with felt to muffle the sound. So the idea is that you would hide inside and lock yourself in from the fear of being abducted. So, you know, and, and, but the way you occupy this uh, uh, weird kind of boxes, containers, how do you... you would actually um, not hide in, in fear, mm-hmm. in a fetal sort of pose, would you but you would, you would occupy a leisure pose. So mm-hmm. with, um, we modeled one around Goya's uh, Maya, who's uh, sitting kind of very quiet yes, yes, yes. with her uh, hands uh, behind her head. There was another one where the box was modeled around the pose where you would lie on your back with your hands behind your head and your feet up in the air. So they were quite you know, humorous, but at the same time quite dark as mm-hmm. objects. But very, like, all the first projects very linked to us and the feelings and our connection to the world. Yes, very but in a much, right? um, yeah, I mean, it was um, uh, a, a very special connection mm-hmm. that you have with your product um, and, and your object. It was exploring uh, this kind of um, 
deeper psychology that exists uh, in, in, in the world that we live in and, and, and the way that objects express um, you know, that relationship. Um, and that fear, that anxiety, because you know we constantly live uh, with anxiety. And uh, have you found that's been relevant to kind of through though your journey and through though your kind of career? That everything you your... do is relevant. Mm. I think I, I I can't think that you can separate something that you do, any experience that you do somehow has an influence in what you will do later or is part of you mm -hmm. and this is what's uh, what's important and so we, we we continue that and 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 we did yet another project after that and and uh, we managed to sell a few mushrooms we managed to sell a few of the furniture pieces in uh, museum collections as well the moma bought one and people are still buying them and museum and institutions still buy them and then decided to do another set of products to extend that family of um, the uh, therapy objects, as we call them, but this time using electronics. Mm -hmm. So they were much more complicated, uh, exploring kind of uh, deeper ideas. And What were they uh, exploring and what did they look like? Well, I can describe some of the objects. One was called Perfect Alignment. And it was a box that you uh, buy and you plug into the socket um, on the wall. Um, and, um, and then when you buy it, you, it's an electronic product. So you type in your birth uh, day and uh, your location uh, of birth and the time of birth. And what it does, it just it scans your astrological data and it looks for perfect moments in your life that are good for you to act upon love. Mm -hmm. And you don't know whether these moments have passed or when they're coming. All you know is that um, there is this possibility that one day this box will explode um, and then this pink inflatable crystal structure inflates in your living room and so you might come home one day and see this pink structure and you know that this is your day your day has come you need to get out of there and look for love so it was exploring this you know uh, hopes dreams insecurities and obsessions psychology the complex psychology that we are surrounded with you know and and and, and so many layers uh, and it's such a depth that, you know, um, each and every single one of those objects was able to capture, you know, And it communicates so there. well with so many people, with all of us, really. Yeah, because it was yet another anxiety that we are faced with. I mean, there was another one, it was relating to safety in terms of being safe when you travel, you know, mm -hmm. because you don't know uh, what is going on what could happen around the corner so it was called the risk watch so it was wa a watch that you uh, would have no face but it would um, have this weird kind of funnel uh, face where you would uh, bring close to your ear and then it whispers a number to you at any moment mm -hmm. you do this and it whispers a number and it gives you the level of risk at that 
particular moment at that particular location that you're in. So one is safe, five is evacuate. You need to leave because something is happening around you and you're not safe anymore. So it plays very much with people's obsession about you know how safe are they, um, is anything going on? You know, you could be in an ideal setting um, somewhere, lying on the beach, and then around the corner. And suddenly you hear the whisper. Terrible might mm. be going on that you're not aware of. I think uh, what's uh, very interesting as well is that all these projects are so relevant to how we are now. But yeah. the human nature doesn't change, yeah. really. Things around us change, but our fears, anxieties, emotions are yeah. very much the same. But we're 20 years later mm, mm. so that project goes back a long time so it's um it was interesting it was an interesting period for me because mm-hmm. um, you were collaboratively at the time i was well, collaborating right? i was this, at the same time also doing my own work mm-hmm. um, and that was probably um the beginning of this house it was right before let's say the house came mm-hmm. along because that's when things started also to change in my work. Mm-hmm. And, and what so I was do you doing. feel that they started, would you connect it, that kind of getting this house and... Suddenly my living environment was mm-hmm. important, mm-hmm. you know, more important than I thought it could be. Because before it was, I couldn't afford, I was living as a student, I was renting, um, I, I had to live with the objects that my landlord uh, wanted to um, keep in that house and I couldn't get rid of them. So, you know, that frustration somehow wanted me to feel that I needed to create my own space. And I had been in London for 10 years already. Point, yeah. uh, and uh, it was a moment when I decided to stay in London and I said, I want my own place. I want a place where I can actually do what I want and That's express my ideas. And, and I found this place, a place that I could afford at the time, um, because I also wanted it to be an independent building. I didn't want it to be an apartment mm-hmm. in another block. I wanted, uh, like the idea of being able to, to extend it, to change it, to do uh, the to play maximum with it, right? to, to possible, rather than just knock down a, a well. few walls. I mm. mean, I wanted you know, uh, to experiment in a bigger way. And so that's made me start appreciating um, everyday objects in a different way, at least everyday objects that, you know, we were using to live with. Mm. I mean, primarily lights and pieces of furniture that you use, that you sit on, that, and, um, and, and, and soon my house became a platform mm-hmm. for me to express those ideas which were more straightforward ideas i would say i mean they were not sort of so complex i guess um maybe more straightforward at first glance because i think with all the ideas that you mentioned they need exploring and understanding but then everybody can connect to them but maybe with certain objects well i I mean i I call them straightforward i think it's (laughs) it's, it's good to put them in inverted Mm. commas but meaning let's say um uh acceptable to a wider audience, mm-hmm. um, maybe uh, products that were available or could be available for people to purchase mm-hmm. and not on an, um, 
uh, one off uh, level that the previous objects I was making were um, uh, that found a home, but, but it was a different kind of home. It was a museum home. as well, for a gallery. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they were much more complex so to realize as well with the current technology, mm-hmm. although we managed to resolve that technology, but on a prototype say, state, so it was very, very difficult to see them as industrial products. And I also felt at that moment my frustration in the role that I had. I mean, I believed in industrial production. And even in the old times, I wanted those objects. I wanted the message cups. I wanted all these products to be industrially produced products. Mm -hmm. But the reality said that they couldn't be, and especially at that time. So maybe they came too soon. So how did I how could I bridge that gap somehow? And, and, and so these questions about my role uh, as a designer, um, being involved in industrial production, um, made me start to make other things. Mm-hmm. And I needed a light I couldn't afford, and I needed a light that fitted in a particular setting um, perfectly without any compromise. Hence, I made a light, I hung it up, it's still up there. Was um, that the, is that first the first? One. Yes. Is that the first, because, so this is the first design, but it's is it the, the first, first Let's object. say, production piece mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I made. Yes, because my first light was not this one. My first light was the antisocial light. And it was a living room light that glows only when there is absolute silence. So when you talk around it, it dims down and then eventually it switches off. So you cannot speak. You so so that's very much on the verge of connecting what you were doing before well, and going into lighting. Well, this was before. Right? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So it certainly was not an object <laughs> that I was living with, for sure. So and this, then this was, was the, the first, first object that I started living with. And, um, and, and this is what um, fascinated me in terms of the um, production of the piece you know I started getting into all these kind of details that extended beyond the prototype phase of Mm -hmm. something that I was never able to go past that stage previously and and did you find that fascinating to get it was fascinating it It was fascinating and maybe that was uh, maybe the engineering training uh, sort of kicked in 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 some ways Um, what was also, you know, uh, interesting at that time was that I had reconnected with an old friend of mine uh, that was an architect, um, Indian architect, uh, Bijoy Jain from Studio Mumbai currently. Um, and uh, he had uh, left his job in the US working in LA with Richard Meyer. Uh, to come to London and set up his practice. So I was introduced to him. Um, We liked each other very much in terms of shared ideas and he very much liked my work and my approach and invited me to start working on a project with him. At that time, it was a restaurant, which never got realized. And that was in the early 90s, probably in 94, 95. And after that project kind of uh, didn't take off, he decided to uh, go back to India, Mm -hmm. go back home after being away for a very long time. 
um, and, uh, and settled there and set up his practice there. And then he came back again here um, in the uh, late 1990s and, um, and we met again and he said to me, this is where I am now and I'd like you to come and visit me in India. And so he invited me, he uh, flew me over, uh, went to see him, I spent some time with him, he showed me what he was doing and he said to me, I want you to help me make things, design and make things for all these places that I'm building and maybe work with me on mm -hmm. certain projects. And, and it was interesting because that concept of um, production um, was uh, had a different sense of freedom there which didn't exist in the west because for us industrial production was the idea of producing in multiples but working for fabricators and you know and this was the model that they taught me at the royal college mm -hmm. but certainly that model didn't well, really like exist in over there in india because you know it was so remote the lack of availability of um, uh, design products um, was quite, you know, big in a sense that they didn't actually exist. So if you needed something, it was easier and cheaper to make it rather than going through the complexity of actually flying it over and getting it over there, you know, and, and people, um, you know, that only people that had a lot of money were able to import, let's mm -hmm. say, furniture or light fixture. So, so there was a certain sort of an incredible um, freedom in terms of making things. Oh, you know, we need something, we'll make it. And, and, and that changed also my perception of how complicated it is to make things. And, and, and all these different factors made me want to um, start making objects. And then eventually that led to me creating my own brand mm -hmm. under my name. Uh, and then in 2007, I decided, you know, to set up Michael Anastasiades as a brand mm -hmm. and was primarily that, a lighting brand. And was that the time when you exhibited at Maison Objet for the first time? Well, that, that, that came in um, uh, maybe a year uh, later because I was trying to kind of see how can I expose um, uh, my designs, mm -hmm. uh, how can I make uh, those pieces available, you know, to people, for people to see. Um, and, uh, and somebody suggested that like, this would be a good fair for me to do. And, um, and, 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 and I went there as an exhibitor, you know, as a you know, young exhibitor. Uh, it was a, quite a, an interesting section. It was called Design Now, something like that. Mm -hmm. I, I took the minimum space that I could uh, possibly get because that's what I could afford. And, and uh, pretty much uh, loaded everything with uh, my cabinet maker and uh, we stayed the night in the hotel set it up together overnight and then that was it three days of showing mm -hmm. so um, and 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 having done uh, Maison then I realized that a trade fair was a great place to showcase your work and and I thought that I need to show in the best possible 
environment mm -hmm. and the biggest that still is the biggest today is Euroluce in Milan at the Milan Furniture Fair and so in uh, 2011 I applied for a stand and they accepted me and that that I think changed everything. Did it? Was that the moment? It was it was an interesting moment mm -hmm. because there I was so that was amongst, four years into yeah. since setting up the brand. Yes. Mm -hmm. But there I was with the biggest lighting brands in the world and the ones that I could ever I could never dream of uh, working with. And and I was there. I was of course I had him. A tiny stand compared to the scale that they were exhibiting in but um, still I was there it was in the same on the same floor I had the same visitors that were walking around exploring things and and and, and I had incredible uh, response from it and one of the biggest things that that happened to me at the time was that I met Piero Gandini from Floss and and that's when that's where uh, the that history was, begins. That was, was <laughs> the time when I kind of uh, things started to change, and I was able to work for for companies that I thought I would never have the opportunity. And did you know straight away? Were you straight away just thinking that designing for you know we'd call it somebody else, or designing for a brand was completely fine, and that's what you wanted to do? I think deep down I always wanted to do okay. it, mm -hmm. right, it, it was, I wanted to do it right when I finished the Royal College because that's what they told me I needed to do. So for me the idea that I wasn't able to do it mm -hmm. for different reasons was um, a sign of failure somehow deep down. So it was... That's because how you were conditioned, right, what you were told. <coughs> because that's what you're conditioned. Mm -hmm. Um, to feel at that time is that this is your role. You're an industrial designer. You need to design for industry. Industry is defined by this and this and this and this brand. You know, that model that existed also historically, the idea of smaller workshops fabricating and designers being involved in the making and production. You know, if you look at all the Austrian school and you know, Joseph Hoffman, Adolf Loos, all this, um, you know, Wiener, Bergstadt, it, it just, that was forgotten at that time. It just didn't exist. It mm -hmm. was very nostalgic even. So it was erased somehow and it was irrelevant, let's say, to what was happening then. So the only possibility was designing for industry. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I couldn't. I didn't have the... I didn't have the right portfolio. I mean, what did I have? An atomic explosion as a hackable toy, you know, a message cup. Mm -hmm. you know, I felt a little bit like a magician. So even if when I went to those brands asking them, because I did not. Did you doors, do that? Mm -hmm. I did. They were fascinated, but not they couldn't bridge the gap. Mm. I could, in my mind, and if they had asked me, I would say, yes, of course I can design a chair. Yes, of course I can design a light for you. 
But so they never believed me. So in 2011, <laughs> they worked with Floss because they saw what you had already produced. Yes, I had already. Because you had your designs already. Produced right? lights mm, and mm. lights that they had seen around, and lights that they liked. Mm. This is very interesting because you you made that happen, right? It wasn't your college that made you happen. That that, that made it. It was your curiosity and research and development, kind of kind of the coming together of you getting this place, needing light, etc., that led you to that moment. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think it's, it, it's all happened because of an accident, but then there's other times that I, I don't really believe that. I mean, mm -hmm. I, no, that's why I said I think that you made it. Yeah. Like it's, you make it, but at the same time, it's, it's also accidental, I think. Had the circumstances been different, maybe I wouldn't be what I am today. Mm -hmm. I would be something else. If you had asked me as a teenager, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would probably turn around and say to you, I want to be an artist. Mm -hmm. uh, because that's all I knew Is that, that the, existed in the... From in, the influences in the family? No, or? not at all. Nobody mm -hmm. in my family is creative. I never grew up in any creative environment. I was so hungry for creativity um, anywhere in my immediate environment that I started looking for it mm -hmm. outside my family, you know, through uh, people that had parents that were creative or, um, you know, architects, painters. And then I started going and working with uh, in uh, artist studios, uh, being an assistant or learning how to draw or learning how to make things. So, so you had it inside that. you? I had it inside away. me and when it came to the moment when I needed to decide what I wanted to be when I grow up, um, what I wanted to be was to be an artist because that was the only discipline that existed being a creative. All this design, um, uh, you know, disciplines that I know today, I, I was not aware of them. I didn't mm. know about industrial design. I didn't know about textile design. I didn't know about So you couldn't you know, come design. up with the idea of wanting to do yeah. that because you, there wasn't yeah. that awareness. If I was a creative, I had to be an artist. That's what I had to be. Mm. And then my parents said to me, you need to get a job. And I couldn't be an artist mm. or at least not yet. You need to study something that you can always go back to if you fail as an artist. Because <laughs> they for told their me the idea same. was that <laughs> it's so closely linked, mm. the, 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 the notion of failure to being creative is, uh, is uh, and, and, and it's terrible. But maybe on the other hand, it makes you feel stronger about wanting to do it. I mean, it delayed me, let's put mm -hmm. it that way. It delayed me to get where I am today. But to then the process extent. made you they made richer. The process as well. made me richer, and and the 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 fact that I survived all these years, and hanging in there, mm, mm. meant that I believed in it. And this is, I think, is a big, um, uh, uh, you know, is the biggest contribution to what I am today in a way that um, 
and 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 I see it not as a uh, time lost, but mm-hmm. I, I see it as a um, you know important time I had to spend. And so, would you say now, um, twenty years into um, having the practice, and would you, do you feel fulfilled as a designer, and do you feel you're an artist? I am a designer in the same way that your parents gave you a name when you were born and you had no choice. I went to study, let's say my studies defined my profession Mm -hmm. and I call myself a designer. Not that I don't believe in design, I believe in design, but I believe in art as well. So um, if I had the choice, I would call myself a creative. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't call uh, myself either of the two. So you but, don't need to, really. But I, I'm a designer, and there's nothing wrong about being a designer. And as a designer, I can do a lot of things. It's my work that defines me, really, mm-hmm. and it's not uh, a title that I'm given through my qualifications. And that's what's important. I used to struggle with that. I think for it's many years, for especially all the creators. old days mm-hmm. when I was making all these kind of strange mm-hmm. objects for people. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're not a designer, you're an artist. And that was the first reaction that people mm-hmm. would say. And I didn't know whether I should take it as a compliment or as criticism for failure. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, I think it was a little bit of both at that time. And now being the designer of the year <laughs> for Maison Objet, then here it is. I mean, it's a great honor, but you know, it's uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's great. It's fantastic because somehow it's a nice story. Somehow, you know, like sort of Maison being the first fair that I tried, now being back at Maison, sort of, you know, With a much ten years later, <laughs> but, you know, in a stand that they gave me to exhibit and. And, and is under different circumstances. I mean, of course, all these things have meaning. Uh, but, you know, I think more than anything is the idea is that you just need to go on. You need to mm-hmm. continue. And that's all that they tell me. In the same way that when I managed to sell my first piece or mm-hmm. when, I, when somebody saw my first piece of work and and turned around and said to me, this is amazing. I think it has the same kind of value to me. Mm-hmm. It just basically encourages you to go on. And apart from the appreciation and the events, what uh, personally, what truly makes you go on and makes you keeps you creating and designing? I think you've got to have it inside you. Um, I don't think there, for me there's an ultimate destination where I want to reach I mean I think creativity is probably the only thing that will um, stay with me and hopefully right until the end um, I don't see it as a an achievement in uh, and uh, and I, I feel incredibly um, 
lucky to be given all these opportunities and all these invitations uh, from people from different companies to work with them to do things I mean I think it's a kind of a dream come true because that's what you uh, what frustrates every creative person is the lack of opportunities because otherwise you have to self um, motivate mm -hmm. uh, um, you know to arrive the production of work and then sometimes this is really really tough because it kind of you're constantly reminded of the fact that you're alone and this is the reality of life and you know if you if you have to do everything by yourself and motivate yourself and you know and and, and establish that discipline without an audience without an encouragement that's that's a really tough thing to do this is the ultimate test somehow mm -hmm. i think as people we are meant to have a dialogue and i think this is the dialogue is that appreciation from somebody outside and so when for me, it's irrelevant whether there's one person or whether there's a thousand mm -hmm. people or whether it's a hundred thousand people. Yeah, but uh, because uh, I kept going when it was one person telling me this is good, I like this. Or if I made somebody smile and it's the same satisfaction that I get when I describe an idea that mm -hmm. I first did to you and you still smile even though that idea uh, was executed uh, 30 years ago. Mm. It's the so, connection that you built, isn't it? It's absolutely. The, it's the yeah. if resonance. You, if you're able to communicate, if you're able to speak, because design is about communication. It's about dialogue. It's about conversation. And what you're hoping for is that your object will still be relevant one day, even when you're gone. And you will still make somebody smile or excited oh, by you, looking you'll at move it. them yeah you'll move and create emotion whatever yes, absolutely in, in in whatever way mm -hmm. if if even if they find it funny even if they find it entertaining even if they find it beautiful or all these things that i think is uh is fantastic that's yeah, a really yeah. beautiful note to finish our conversation on i think we've i've learned so much about you and your work Kind of much more than what I've kind of come with in my head, which is fascinating. I think for the listeners as well to 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 hear about your approach and essentially your creative um, philosophy and the journey you've been on as well, and see that it's not um, linear, that it almost sometimes happens kind of on its own. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. What a wonderful note to finish our conversation on so many um, insights into being a creative, right? Not just being a designer, um, being an engineer, being a creative. And um, actually what we discussed, kept we kept chatting of the record after the after uh, after this recording. And, um, you know, what, what Michael shared with me as well um, was that, you know, he 
his career really took off, um, design career really took off in his 40s. And actually before that, he was splitting his time and making his income from partly from design and partly actually from being a yoga teacher. Um, so that's just a reminder to for us to always be playful and play with opportunities and what's happening and not be too hung up on that big idea of that one glorious day when we'll feel like we've made it. Um, and somebody recently told me as well, which I thought was um, a beautiful quote, that they strongly believe that great progress is made by just step by step, putting one foot in front of another. Um, that's the way, the most solid way of growing. So that was the first chat of this year. I hope you've really enjoyed it. Um, so the usual, but if you're new, if you're not subscribed uh, to the podcast yet, press subscribe button, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you're listening to it. You can always rate this pod as well and leave a comment, which is fantastic. Makes me happy, but also helps allow uh, others to find it. And if you want to look at the archive of conversations, because we have over 45 um, episodes now, and if you want to find out more about lighting design, you might want to listen to my chat with Lee Broom, um, then head to, again, Apple Pods to the podcast and kind of scroll through, or you can find everything on my website, which is justinagreen.com, and you spell my name J-U-S-T-Y-N-A. Um, and you'll find me at Justina Green on Instagram and on Twitter as well. Um, and that's all. I really look forward to being with you this whole year, bringing you inspiration, entertainment um, and being part of your creative journey. Bye for now. Bye.